3: In the six years of Pee-wee's murderous streak, he killed several women in his circle. At least a dozen of them moved in and out of his bedroom, whether as wives or live-in lovers, often at the same time, often in abusive ways. Like property, he gave women to other men around him, including Walter Neely. Jesse Judy moved out of Pee-wee's house to live with Johnny Sellers, her new lover, They were later found buried together in Pee-wee's field of death.
4: Jesse Judith was on her way to a happy life when Pee-wee killed him.
5: If anybody knew what he was doing inside the house, they would never believe me.
1: Everybody knew that half what he talked
4: about was just made up. I said, Pee-wee. Would you ever lie to me and said, yes, I would.
3: From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. I'm Jeff Keating. 1976, Pee Wee claimed that he killed Peg Cutno. He didn't, of course, but he was banking on the goodwill it would generate with his fellow inmates. Once in prison, taking blame for somebody else's crime was a big deal. But for Pee Wee to stay out of prison was a different story altogether. It meant manipulating, threatening, and controlling people. Those skills were never more evident with Pee-wee's three friends, Sandy Snell Gaskins, Walter Neely, and Donna Carullo.
4: Sandy Snell Gaskins, the fifth wife, who was at that time living in the same house with the sixth wife, told the police that Pee-wee and Kim were often in prospect. So that's how the case opened.
3: Sandy Snell was married to Pee-wee Gaskins before Donna Carullo came along. Sandy and Donna accepted the arrangement and were both living with Pee-wee when the Charleston police knocked on their door and asked them about a missing girl. Sandy told them she had recently seen Pee-wee with 13-year-old Kim Gelkins and that the two of them had gone to prospect. That's when the entire investigation shifted to Pee-wee Gaskins and his friend Walter Neely.
4: Sandy was very talkative the one who really spilled the beans that got him locked up when they first began the investigation.
3: You took quite the risk when you went jawing to the police about Pee Wee Gaskins. But tying him to an investigation of a missing girl could prove deadly.
4: And I said, well, what was the problem with Miss Snell? He said she jaw jawing. He said she couldn't keep her mouth shut. He was careful to tell me several times, but the first time was the most poignant. He said, I should have gone ahead and done what I knew I should do and blowed her up. We were talking about dynamite. And he said
3: if he just used dynamite to blow up old lady Snell. Old lady Snell was Sandy Snell's mother. Pee-wee thought she was the primary informant, when in fact...
4: Sandy is the one who spilled most of the beans, so to speak with the North Charleston police.
3: Sandy had good reason to turn on Pee-wee and her tip to the police that Pee-wee was with the missing girl, Kim Gelkins, may have been more than a simple slip of the tongue. Their relationship started out in typical Pee-wee fashion. Doreen Dempsey had recently moved out because Pee-wee's work took him away from home too often. That's when he met Sandy Snell Her family had worked for the Amusements of America Carnival, and as the fair moved on, Sandy stayed behind, and soon fell in love with Pee-wee. Ten months later, they had a son, and the trio moved to North Charleston, where Pee-wee landed a roofing job. These were good times, but it wouldn't be long before Pee-wee was chasing other women. Here's his former employer. On the weekends, he used to like to go to the honky tonks and fool around with the women.
1: Well, I think when I was up there one time, I may have met his wife outside and met some other girls. Because a lot of times he'd have his wife living there, and sometimes he'd have a other woman living in the house too. So, you know, we think he was a
3: womanizer. Soon after their relationship started, Sandy heard a rumor that Pee Wee had gotten another girl pregnant. That girl may have been Martha Ann Dix, known as Clyde. The Sheriff Department's investigator, Hugh Mathis, reported that Sandy began dating another man because Pee-wee, quote, gone out with a black girl, end quote. That rumor, combined with Sandy dating another man, proved too much for Gaskins. According to the domestic abuse report Sandy filed against him, Pee-wee took Sandy to a spot near the Sunrise Racetrack, on US 521 South, about five miles from Sumter. He tied her to a tree and beat her with, quote, branch limbs bigger than your thumb, end quote. The investigator said she appeared to be beaten badly, but Sandy would later refuse to press charges. This abusive, volatile relationship would continue. One report stated that Sandy burned down Pee Wee's North Charleston house. Because he allowed her sister Wanda to stay there and began having an affair. In Pee Wee's soap opera world, women often died. This is Jennifer Hawes, a reporter at the Post and Courier newspaper and author of the award winning book, Grace Will Lead Us Home. Here she talks about the Pulitzer Prize winning investigation she authored with three other writers called Till Death Do Us Part.
5: We decided to begin Till Death Do Us Part because of a press release saying that South Carolina had ranked number one in the country in terms of men killing women. And in fact, it had been in the top 10 as long as these records were kept this way. We need to really sit down and explore why this is. And so the editors got a team together to discuss different ways of looking at this One of the things that we found was this strong idea that women should be sort of seen and not heard in the household, that women were viewed more as property, that women were not empowered within these households. And really, domestic violence comes down to power and control. There's a common misperception that abusers have anger management problems. But of the victims that we talked to, that was just not the case. There was a common scenario where a woman would say, My husband, boyfriend, whatever, um, was a great guy. You know, everybody thought he was a great guy. If anybody knew what he was doing inside the house, they would never believe me. And then, within the house, he's manipulating her uh you know she's not good enough, nobody else would love her. you know you're ugly, you're fat- and at the same time, restricting her access to friends and family and often income so that she's trapped uh, and that's the idea when I say that it's a power struggle, and so when we think of somebody as property, that's what we're talking about is as someone who's completely disempowered in the household and not treated as an equal human being.
3: That power struggle happened in Wee Gaskin's household. He controlled and manipulated and even bragged about his property, proclaiming he had, quote, given Sandy to his buddy Walter Neely.
4: That's correct. The ultimate gifts that uh, Wee gave were women. He gave Sandy, his former wife, to Walter. The main gift was the Jesse Judy...
3: Given to Johnny Sellers, so Sandy moved in with Walter, while a new woman, Jesse Judy, would soon move in with Pee Wee. Within a year, Jesse would move on to live with Johnny Sellers. It wouldn't end well. James Canoy Judy was Pee Wee's friend, coworker, and neighbor, who had two women who loved him, Jesse and Donna, but then leave him as he fell back into his drug addictions. Pee Wee Gaskins would take in both women. Only this time, he and Donna Carullo would get married until death did them part. Here's Holly Gatling, the state newspaper reporter who covered this story from the beginning. We asked her about Donna Carullo, who was 20 years younger than Gaskins and became his sixth and final wife.
6: I think that when someone is in love The whole mechanism of the emotion of love is to blind yourself to the faults of the person you love. I can't speak to Donna at all, but I think just generally speaking, many, many people will excuse the faults and the activities of the people that they love. Because they love them. I know many people in prison have families on the outside, families who love them regardless of what they've done, will stand by them, will do what they can to help rehabilitate the person, because that's what love is all about.
5: It's love till death do us part. You know, they love this man and they see him in terms of the man he could be or the man that he was, the man who might return if he could stop drinking or if he could stop doing drugs or if he wasn't under so much stress or if she could be a better wife or a better mother, fill in the blank, that she still loved the man that she saw possible in there. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that 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 relationship was born of something. And in many cases, it was love.
3: Donna Carullo apparently did fall in love with Peewee Gaskins. At the time, Peewee had four women coming and going from his home and backyard trailer. There were bedrooms for each. Besides Sandy and Donna, there were two other women, Marie and Sherry, and many children. The women were all much younger than Peewee, And he covered most expenses for everybody, including food, shelter, and stolen cars for transportation. But it wasn't just money he used to control women.
5: One of the big misconceptions with domestic violence is that women who are victims are low-income, and that is true in many scenarios, but it's not universally the case. And that's what we found, was that uh, domestic abuse occurs in every socioeconomic strata. It's a relationship in which a man is trying to exert tremendous amount of control over a woman. The idea that it's only low-income women is really off the mark.
3: Why wouldn't the women just leave? Well, then and now, leaving could literally get the abused victim killed.
5: And the number one reason that women don't leave is fear. Because they know in their heart of hearts, and actually in terms of the statistics, about 75% of domestic homicides occur after the relationship ends. So either because she's tried to leave or filed charges, they know that that's when they're going to be at the gravest danger.
3: Sandy had enough abuse and didn't bother to cover for Pee Wee when telling detectives about the missing girl, Kim Gelkins. Walter couldn't take it anymore and led the police to Johnny Knight's grave. But Donna didn't leave. In fact, she continued her relationship with Pee Wee Gaskins, even after he'd been indicted for killing eight friends and associates. Even after he was convicted for killing Dennis Bellamy. Whether she knew it or not, she would soon serve a critical role in finding Kim Gelkins, As would Walter Neely.
4: Walter's a little slow, is all... That was the way Pee-wee described Walter Neely.
3: A psychiatrist would later testify that Walter had an IQ of 56 and was, quote, moderately mentally retarded, end quote, with a personality disorder that leaves him socially inept and dependent on other persons. It wasn't easy for Walter Neely. It was hard for him to hold down a job so it's not surprising he became skilled at stealing dealings. That life meant he was running with a rough crowd and also bullied a lot by Dennis Bellamy, his ex-wife Diane Bellamy, even his closest friend Peewee. Peewee gave him Sandy Gelkins as a girlfriend, but then later killed Walter's common-law wife Diane Bellamy and blamed him for the murder. In the end, Walter went to prison because he was always with the wrong people at the wrong time, and he was the perfect scapegoat. Walter made the mistake of traveling with Dennis Bellamy and Johnny Knight to prospect the night Pee-wee Gaskins unexpectedly killed Dennis in a dispute over money. A crazy scene. Pee-wee and Dennis leave Johnny Knight and Walter alone in the trailer where they are watching TV and having fun. Pee Wee returns a short while later and invites them outside to hang out with him and Dennis. Here's Walter's statement to the police about what happened next Johnny and I were looking up into a tree, and I heard a gunshot right beside me, and I turned, and Johnny fell backwards on the ground. He made no noises and lay very still. Pee Wee shined the light on Johnny's face, and I could see what looked like a bullet hole in the center of Johnny's forehead. It looked like to me where a bullet had come out. I was scared to say anything, and I did not ask Pee-wee any questions. That night would be too much for Walter. 35 days later, he led police to these two graves. Only to then find himself arrested for being an accomplice to the murder of six of the eight bodies, found in the field that cold November day in 1975. He would be tried for one murder, Dennis Bellamy, and while his attorney would allege Walter was an unwitting accomplice since Pee Wee had threatened to kill him if he said anything, the jury only took three and a half hours to decide otherwise. As the prosecution claimed, slow Walter Neely could pull the trigger of a gun just as well as a smart man. Walter was sentenced to death by electric chair, but through the appeals process ended up with consecutive life sentences, plus 20 years. He was serving his time at the Libra Correction Institution, a maximum security prison in Ridgeville, South Carolina, when he died in 1998. He was 52 years old.
7: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey?
3: investigators founded in Pee-wee's burial field in December 1975. About a year earlier, James was one of several associates Pee-wee got employed at a roofing company. He worked there over a year with Pee-wee, but had something else in common with Gaskins, Jesse Judy and Donna Carullo. James was married to Jesse, but his drug abuse made life untenable and she left him and moved in with Pee-wee and his wife, Sandy. Apparently, she brought a baby with her.
4: Jesse Judy moved in with Pee-wee, and she had a little child. And Pee-wee could tell that the child was very, very sick, and Jesse didn't know, it. wasn't feeding the baby correctly, wasn't taking care of the baby. So Pee-wee ordered Sandy to take the baby to the doctor, and the doctor was very alarmed. The baby was seriously ill, but they nursed the baby back to health, and Pee-wee paid all the doctor expenses, all the new food, and the baby soon was perfectly well, perfectly happy.
3: It was during this time that Jim says Pee-wee really fell in love with Jesse Judy.
4: He says often that he loved her more than anybody else, and I think there were days that he actually thought that, if he was capable of really loving anybody.
3: Pee-wee was 20 years older than Jesse, and she apparently yearned for another type of life. But after about a year, she moved out of Pee-wee's house and in with Johnny Sellers.
4: Johnny Sellers fell in love with Jesse Judy. Sincerely so.
3: Sometime later, James dated Donna Carullo, but drug abuse and financial problems got the best of him. And she too left him for Pee-wee, who was still married to Sandy. When Jesse Judy's body was found in Pee-wee's burial field, Florence County solicitor Ken Summerford was convinced her death was James getting rid of his ex-wife with Pee-wee's help. James Canoy Judy was arrested on December 6, 1975, at the age of 22, and charged with murdering Johnny Sellers whose body was found with Jesse Judy. Here's his former employer at the Roofing Company.
1: He worked for us for about a year. And from the stories we heard, James got Pee Wee and got his wife and took him out in the country and had Pee Wee kill him. And then they buried him. And that's the story we heard. I think James Judy did turned state's evidence and he didn't get much time in jail we don't know how factual that is or not but that's just a story
3: we heard back then james's attorney convinced him to take an alford plea which allows an accused to plead guilty while still maintaining innocence to avoid a trial and possible conviction on a more serious charge with that plea he was sentenced to 10 years in prison but was released in three when the parole board recognized he was not guilty of killing his ex-wife or her boyfriend. Johnny Sellers was a native of Johnsonville, South Carolina, 45 miles south of Florence. He was in a theft ring along with his younger brother Carl. Johnny and Peewee had stolen a boat and given it to a guy named Belton Eadie. Edie was the fence for Pee-wee's stolen goods. When Johnny Sellers got busted for breaking into a drugstore, Pee-wee bailed him out of jail. Johnny was desperate and needed money to pay his lawyers and a legal fine he owed. He planned to pay the fine, lawyers, and Pee-wee back with the money from Belton Edie. But Edie never paid, and Johnny became vocal about it. Jawin', which always ends badly, when you're in Pee-wee's circle. He
4: threatened Melton Edie on the telephone and said, look, if I don't get paid soon, I'm gonna go straight to the law and I don't have anything to lose by doing this because I've got the goods on you guys.
3: Like so many people in this story, Johnny had limited money and few legitimate resources. Crime was a way to get by more than a passion or habit. He wanted a life with Jesse, and paying off his debt would help get that life going. But those who went around jawing about Pee-wee's crimes paid the ultimate price. So Pee-wee and Edie concocted a plan to get rid of Johnny.
4: Belt and Edie had grown weary of Johnny Sellers' threats. Belt and Edie would not pay Johnny and Carl for what they had stolen and given to him. So Johnny was upset and was threatening to go to the law with the whole kitten caboodle. The straw that broke the was back with Johnny Sellers is that he and Pee Wee stole a, a station wagon with a boat on it from a friend of Pee Wee's and sold it and got a lot of money for it and Johnny Sellers never paid for that car theft. He wanted immediately $2,000 and it never came. Johnny Sellers simply violated the code of loyalty and threatened to talk about the setup with the stealing dealings that were going on with Pee Wee
3: and Melton Eady. According to recorded depositions with Ken Summerford, Gaskins confessed that it was Belton Edie who hid a loaded rifle in the trunk of Pee-Wee's car. When everyone met at Edie's house in June 1974, Jesse stayed behind. Johnny and Pee-wee went to get stolen guns so Johnny could sell them and get back on his feet again. But Gaskins drove Johnny to the woods and shot him in the back. He hid the gun beside a tree and headed back to Edie's house. Pee-wee got Jessie, took her back to the same location, and stabbed her with his Campbell soup knife. Belt and Eady would later plead guilty and get a sentence of 10 years for his participation in Johnny's murder. As for James Canoy Judy, Gaskins would have something to say about that as well, in this exchange with Solicitor Ken Summerford. Summerford Alright, I want to go back to Connoy Judy. He didn't ask you to kill Johnny? Gaskins. No, he didn't know nothing in the world about it. At the time, Connoy was living with Donna, the girl I'm married to right now, and he had no reason in the world wanting Jesse killed whatsoever. Pee Wee never wavered on his story that James Connoy was innocent of the crime, but he would be willing to say whatever the prosecution wanted him to, stating, The boy is innocent, but if you want me to lie and hang him, I'll give you a statement if you want to hang the man now. Gaskins told Summerford that he killed her 25 feet from where Johnny's body lay. Here's more from their interaction. Summerford, y'all have any conversation before you killed her? Gaskins, I just told her I was going to kill her. Summerford, you did? What did she say? Gaskins Not a word in the world She didn't cry I said, Jesse, I'm going to kill you And she looked at me like she didn't believe me I just took it Stuck it right through her about here And she just wilted right down to the ground And I pulled it out Summerford, Did y'all have sexual relations? Gaskins At that time, no we did not Summerford, Do you remember how she was dressed? Gaskins A pair of shorts and a little shirt. Her shorts come off when I put her in the grave. Jesse Judy had
4: a real heart. And she really fell in love with Johnny Sellers. And was on her way, I think, to a happy life with him when Pee Wee killed him.
3: The book Jim was writing about Pee Wee is called Pee-wee and Me. It has a Shakespearean literary flavor and includes a chapter on the tragic love story between Jesse and Johnny. Here's Jim and Anita.
4: I think she, in a sense, emotionally had come into her own by the time that the relationship gelled between her and Johnny Sellers.
6: You don't want to say what you say about Jesse and Johnny setting up
4: housekeeping and all that, do you? Yeah, that's a good thing to say.
6: Okay.
4: There's a chapter entitled uh, "Jesse and Johnny Set Up Housekeeping," and that chapter ends with a quote from a, a poem from John Donne. He says to her, "You make a little room, and everywhere." And that's how he described a little tiny apartment that they were able to rent and move and do for the first time.
3: Jim cites English poet John Donne's work called The Good Morrow, a celebration of the pleasures of true love. It begins by asking what two true lovers could possibly have been doing before they met. Any other prior lovers were, but a dream of thee, the one true love. Donne compares life before this love to a child suckling at its mother's breast. True love makes, quote, one little room and everywhere, end quote. Jim's image of Jesse Judy and Johnny Sellers finding their first small apartment together is painted with 17th century poetics. And it's not surprising that Jim's occupation as a literature professor inflects his worldview. More specifically, It's not surprising that a metaphysical poet like John Donne is his reference. And this one line of poetry does more for Jim and Anita than frame the second-hand image of ill-fated lovers Jesse and Johnny as they set up a little home together. The line reads, and makes one little room and everywhere. You're not letting all, but
6: you don't want to tell the rest.
4: Please tell what I want don't want to tell.
6: No, no, I'm not going to, because he said it reminded you of us.
4: Oh yes, it was Anita and me. Yes, over, over, and over. You? Huh?
6: Does that embarrass you? Does that? No. Yes, it does. I'm saying.
7: Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life, transform the world.
3: In his dozens of interviews with Pee Wee, Jim heard aspects of Pee Wee's life that others hadn't. Details they missed in their quick identification of the mass murderer. But these sorts of details, of Jesse and Johnny being in real love, or of Jesse being Pee Wee's true love, they came out of Jim's literary background, informed by years of reading and teaching these familiar names. Chaucer. Milton, Dunn, Shakespeare, Blake and Keats, religion, metaphysics, romantics, this is where Jim specialized, and he approached Pee Wee from the first meeting to the last with this mindset. But if Jim saw Pee Wee through a literary lens, how did he see Jim? And what made Pee Wee choose Jim to write his story? Like Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Pee-wee had an alter ego, which he seemed to control at will. And his characters were perceived differently by those around him, depending on which persona Pee-wee put on display. For a writer, these characters, stories, and legends were literary gold. And Jim could not stop filling pages with these comical and sordid tales. Here's another perspective from Pee-wee's employer as he talks about the character he saw at work.
1: Actually, everybody liked Pee-wee. He was a very likable fella, despite what he did. He was very likable. He was a short fella in stature, a little heavy He was quite a character. He would tell a tale and like to talk stories and... Everybody knew that half what he talked about was probably just made up.
3: He speaks here of Pee Wee, as anyone would about a good employee. He was a hard worker, and nobody ever complained about him.
1: He was strong. You know, he might have been smaller in stature, <clears throat> but he was a strong man. Um, well, let me put it this way. He had a bet with some fellows at work one day that he could take a tire and lay it on the ground. And take a, a sledgehammer and crowbar, and get the tire off the rim and put it back on the rim, and pump it up by with a you know, regular old bicycle pump. So we watched him one day, and he actually did that. Can you imagine how hard that would be? He won the bet. I think they bet like two dollars. Uh, he just did it 'cause he he could do it. I call him a
3: shade tree mechanic. Shade Tree Mechanic Pee-wee worked on a lot of cars under oak trees on the property in Prospect cars he and others had stolen cars he was flipping for someone else and cars he was going to give to people this was greasy hard work and the boss appreciated that but looking back he had no idea what Pee-wee was really up to None of us had
1: any clue about what he was doing, for lack of a better term, what he was doing
3: on the weekends. On the weekends, indeed. If a boss viewed Pee-wee one way, how did the reporters perceive him? Here's Cecil Chandler, who covered Pee-wee Gaskins in 1975 for TV 13 in Florence, South Carolina.
8: When I first started in television, this was the biggest story that I'd ever come up on. I was working with CBS News, and I got a chance to interview Pee Wee when he was on trial. And I asked him several things about what he did coming up and what turned him into the life of murdering people. And he said, Well, it was just my way of life. He said, I traveled with the carnival for a while, and I just kind of picked all of this up. And I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I reckon from. His way of life growing up, you know, with very little or nothing, and then traveling all around with the carny guys, it just picked him up to, you know, if something was wrong, he didn't like somebody, that he would beat him up or kill him. He told me a lot of weird stuff, but, you know, how much of it can you believe, you know? I've always heard the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. Well, if you looked at Pee Wee Gaskins, you would not think he had killed more than a dozen people. Just looked like a normal guy, but uh, you never know. And uh, I tell you, so beware of people that you think are ordinary, but they may not be.
3: Margaret O'Shea had hours of direct contact with Pee Wee and conducted her own research about his crimes. Like Cecil Chandler, she has a reporter's disposition that worked to understand his motives.
9: He worked on a tobacco farm at one time, and he and an accomplice were involved in helping to sell tobacco, but they came upon a scheme that worked better than selling tobacco. They would clear the barn of Tobacco and get it hauled off in the night to sell elsewhere, and then they would set the barn on fire. The farmer, who usually was not involved in the arson itself or even the theft, would collect insurance, and so he got paid for his crop but Pee-wee and his accomplice also got paid because they had stolen it and sold it so it it's like everything he touched might have a legitimate element. But there was always something running undercurrent that was an illegal way to sweeten the pot and make it better.
3: Jim Beatty spent his years reflecting on the Pee-wee saga with a literary perspective. He had read the words, studied the rhythm, heard the rhyme, and tapped the meter to John Donne and other writers who created human dramas with words. Like Dunn's, Jim's perspective is typically dramatic rather than descriptive, and he was tasked to put the peewee drama into his own words. The
4: responsibility that I felt was to record, actually, the life of this mass murderer. And as I got into the interviews and learning him, and about him and trying to determine what made him tick, so to speak, I realized it was impacting me tremendously. And my life and outlook and perspective was changing because of this experience that I was having with this mass murder. So I moved from a novice writer into an investigator, a student of this personality and, and this man, and I, and I say often, one of the tragedies of Pee-wee's life, or his execution, certainly, was that he was not studied. He was not taken for months and months and months, and studied. I felt that as human beings, the responsibility was to study this person, to study why he did what he did. His background, what could have prevented it? What we could have done so that it would never ever happen again. Those are the things that became my own in trying
3: to write this book. Jim's perspective is distinctive, and whatever subject Pee Wee talked about, love, death, God, human frailty, murder. Jim presents it in the context of some metaphysical problem concerning the human condition. He also witnessed contradictions in Pee Wee's behavior.
4: There were events of kindness that just absolutely shocked me. The fact that he would risk going back to jail to steal a transmission at night... In a street in Florence, South Carolina, to put into the car of an elderly woman who hadn't driven her car for 60
1: days. An elderly lady went to him and told him that transmission was uh, slipping in the car. I wonder if he'd fix it. And he looked at it, and he figured, well, he couldn't fix the transmission. And the story goes, he drove around town till he found a car just like her's. Then he went back in the middle of the night, crawled up underneath the car, dropped that transmission out of that car on the side of the road, took it back, and installed it in her car, and then when she came to get it, he said, yeah, he'd fixed it, and he accepted the $15 that she said was all the money she had to fix her transmission. You know, I know he didn't get paid a whole lot working on cars, because most people's cars he worked on was, um, you know, like poor people. They weren't wealthy people. And, and like I said, he, and he
4: loved the fact that, he says, as far as I knew, Mr. Jim, it's still running. It made me marvel at the inconsistency of this character. The same hands, the same mind, the same man. These two different behaviors. I wanted to study him. I wanted to find out how this could be. Such a paradox, such a contradiction. What a dichotomy was this man. And every time I visited him, I saw that. One of my main interests in continuing to write the life of Pee Wee was I was always looking for something positive. And when I found those acts of kindness in the midst of the life of this mass murderer, it was outstanding. And I was hoping that as we moved along, hope against hope, that somehow there would be signs of, I don't want to be theological or religious, but some sign of repentance. I'm sorry I did this. I must admit, I was hoping to have a book that had just a ray of hope of the human spirit and the human character. So I was looking on this life's level of something that would be a positive that I could write about, and that was what I was hoping would be the conclusion of my life of Wee Gaskins.
3: Jim has articulated his literary process. He says, quote, I was looking on this life's level for something that would be a positive that I could write about. From the beginning, he was looking for the good, the positive. He went looking for that pre-existing inner nature in a horrid man. For Jim, goodness is the assumed mode of being in the world. It's the force that first led him to divinity school and its theological questions. The writers, poets, and playwrights he taught at university filled volumes of stories on that same search. With Pee Wee, Jim was asking questions about a man who grew up in the same general area as he did. That man killed more than a dozen people, and those questions often had responses that tell us about Jim's character in his own story. Many of those stories Jim taught come fashioned with positive, moral, uplifting, good prevail sort of narratives. Jim is genuinely moved by the poetics of the relationship between art, literature, and life. Literature exposes life and lays bare the human condition. The last stanza of that Dunn poem, The Good Morrow, reverberates even further in revealing Jim Beatty, the author, and his character. The lovers of the poem are in their own world, their eyes constantly reflecting in each other's. If our two loves be one, none can die. Heroically, love conquers death. Nothing is so romantic. Love, truth, death, These are the subjects of authors through the ages. In words, love never dies. Death cannot contain us. Myth sized topics and as hopeful as can be. But where was the love, hope, or truth in Pee Wee's story?
4: I had occasion once to ask Pee Wee, I said, Pee Wee, would you ever lie to me? thinking you know we're old buddies we're old friends he's not gonna lie to me and he thought for a second and said yes I would I said Pee Wee you would lie to me when he said without hesitating half the time so I learned then that Pee Wee was a skilled liar because if you lie half the time
0: You don't know when he's lying. Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive Producers are Courtney DeFreeze and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFreeze and Terry James. Edit, mix, and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani-Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Beatty. Additional thanks to the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections and the University of South Carolina.
7: Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health.
0: I heart.